So let's start with the concept of synapse. Synapse. Last time we said that the electrical signals that the nervous system or the neurons work with, this electrical signal that we call action potential, it travels. And it has to travel and go from neuron to neuron. Usually there are two or three neurons involved in the transmission of this signal, action potential, until it reaches the destination, which is usually a muscle or maybe a gland. And how this signal goes from neuron to neuron, that's what the synapse is. It's a connection between functional units or functional neurons. It's a connection and allows transfer of that information. And that information is what the action potential brings. That's the electrical signal or the message. And it may happen from neuron to neuron or from neuron to an effector cell like a muscle. Here in this graph we see this connection between two neurons. One neuron is getting in contact with the next neuron and that neuron uh, perhaps will send that signal to a third neuron and so like in a chain of information. The synapse, the presence of a synapse will make us to classify the neurons into the presynaptic and the postsynaptic neuron. The presynaptic is the one that sends the information and the postsynaptic is receiving that information. Now the postsynaptic neuron sometimes may be not a neuron but a muscle or a gland cell. That's why sometimes we say postsynaptic neuron and I mean presynaptic neuron and postsynaptic cell which could be a neuron or a muscle. Remember nervous cells and muscle cells they have the same characteristic of being able to be stimulated by uh, electricity and produce action potentials. How these connections are? They may be between the axon of a neuron and the dendrite of the next neuron. May be axosomatic between the axon of a neuron connecting to the body of the next neuron, the body or soma. And according to the type of transmission, what is the mechanism that they work, they may be of two types, chemical synapse or electrical synapse. And we'll see how, what are the differences between these two. Most, most of the synapses in the nervous system are of the chemical type. And this chemical type of synapse is characterized by the presence of neurotransmitters, which are chemical substances. That's why we call them chemical synapse. How this neurotransmitter works, that's what we're going to develop in the next slides. The axon terminal, those terminal branches of the, of the axons, they will contain vesicles filled with neurotransmitter. We call them uh, synaptic vesicles. And those chemicals, the neurotransmitter, will have receptors. There will be receptors for that chemical on the postsynaptic neuron membrane. Depending on where the connection goes, if it goes to the dendrite, to the body of the neuron, but there will be receptors for that neurotransmitter. And the connection is not physical. It's not that the axon of a neuron gets in physical contact with the membrane of the next neuron. There's always a, a gap 
There's always a gap, a space that is filled with fluid, a very small space. That is called the synaptic cleft. So how this message travels is first electrical, gets to the synapses, it turns into a chemical message because of the neurotransmitter. And the neurotransmitters will get attached or bound to the receptors on the postsynaptic neuron. And the postsynaptic neuron will generate a new action potential. That's why in the last phrase, phrase it says electrical impulse change to chemical across the synapse and then back to into electrical because the postsynaptic neuron will create another action potential. And in that way, the message keeps running down. And perhaps the same thing will happen in the connection with the next neuron. So these are the steps that are involved in the chemical synapse. Let's go one by one, and then we'll see all these steps in the graph to understand how they happen and where exactly uh, the mechanisms happen. First, the action potential, AP, is coming down the axon, and we uh, studied that last time. We saw how the, the action potential travels faster in axons that have bigger diameter. But anyway, the, the action potential travels down to the axon terminal. And there are voltage-gated calcium channels in the axon terminal. So they will open. Since they are voltage-gated, the action potential arrives and changes the voltage, and those channels will be open. Following that, calcium will enter inside the axon terminal from the outside of the cell. Outside of the axon will get into the inside of the cell. Now, when the calcium gets in, it will cause the synaptic vesicles to release that neurotransmitter. The synaptic vesicles will fuse to the membrane of the axon terminal, and by exocytosis, it will release the neurotransmitter to the synaptic cleft. So this neurotransmitter diffuses to, across the synaptic cleft and will bind specific receptors on the postsynaptic neuron, in the membrane of the postsynaptic neuron. This binding of neurotransmitters will open ion channels in the postsynaptic neuron. And when this ion channel is open, when the sodium, potassium starts coming in and out, graded potentials. If the graded potentials are strong enough, they will make an action potential. And the neurotransmitter that was released, then the effects will be terminated, how they are broken down, they are metabolized, and no longer stimulating the receptors. So these six steps are involved in the chemical synapses. That's how the message gets from electrical into chemical, and then again into electrical, because an action potential will be created in the postsynaptic neuron. We can see all these steps here. Let's go one by one. Number one up here is showing the action potential arriving at the axon terminal. When it comes down, we see the synaptic vesicles containing the calcium inside, voltage-gated channels, uh, calcium channels will open, and we see the vesicles are releasing the contents of neurotransmitter to the synaptic cleft, which is the space in between the two neurons. It's a very small space. Here is exaggerated. It's just very small, actually. Well, you see the neurotransmitter molecules going across the synaptic cleft, and then they will bind. They will bind receptors on the membrane of the postsynaptic membrane. An amplified, an amplified view is seen down here. We see the neurotransmitter binding, 
this channel is opening and allowing the exchange of sodium potassium which will cause a graded potential and if the graded potentials are strong enough they will create a new action potential and number six all these um, neurotransmitters that have uh, that, that, that bound the receptor once they work they are broken down enzymatic degradation so they will stop working because the stimulation will not last forever we just stimulate enough to create an action potential on the second neuron but then this neurotransmitter has to be reuptaken it's taken back to the axon terminal broken down and taken back Now, this causes a small delay, but we're talking about 0.3 to 5 milliseconds. This is a very small amount, period of time. But this time, in terms of a signal transmission, it is a delay still. We don't notice, but it is a delay that allows regulation. It is slower than an electrical synapse. The electrical synapse is just like connecting two cables and the electricity will just flow. But in this case, electricity turns into a chemical signal and then to electrical. And that causes some delay. But that's important for regulation of the neurons and the speed um, of the action potential. Electrical synapse are less common than the chemical synapses. In this case, the neurons are in contact. They are in physical contact and they share this type of junction called gap junction. Gap junction, if you uh, go back to epithelial tissue, we talked about um, intercellular connections or additions. And one of the mechanisms is gap junctions, which are Proteins on the membrane that get together in two neighbor cells and they work as pores, channels that open a door and it's a connection, connecting door from cell to cell. It's not common, more frequent are the chemical synapses, but they are in some places like in some brain regions that control eye movements. Uh, hippocampus, which is an area involved in emotions and memory, well, this thing has to be very quick. And um, communication through electrical synapse is very, very rapid, comparing with uh, elect uh, chemical synapse. Now, what happens in the postsynaptic membrane on the postsynaptic neuron? The potentials, the graded, graded potentials that are created there by the effect of the neurotransmitter on the receptors are called postsynaptic potentials. But they are graded potentials. And we'll see that there are two types. They are graded potentials. And they may be excitatory or inhibitory. And we use the abbreviations EPSP, IPSP for these two types of action, of postsynaptic action potentials. EPSPs. An EPSP is a greater potential caused by the neurotransmitter when it binds to these channels, chemically gated, the neurotransmitter has to bind to, uh, to the channel in order to be open and allows flow of sodium and potassium in opposite directions. But sodium comes in in more amounts than the potassium comes out. And when more sodium comes in, then we see depolarization. So there is more positive charges inside the cell because there's more sodium coming in. 
And that's why it's a depolarization, and we call that excitatory postsynaptic potential, or EPSP. Now, if we have a lot of neurotransmitter stimulating one after another, many more channels, the amount of greater potentials will be enough to create an action potential. So the EPSPs will trigger action potentials if the amount of EPSPs reach the threshold. Where that happens in the axon hillock of the neuron. At the beginning of the axon, when the axon connects to the body of the neuron, that is the place where all these greater potentials concentrate, and if enough, reaching the threshold, it will create a new action potential. And then that action potential will travel along the axon, perhaps to communicate with another neuron. That's how we see the EPSP, the stimulus, and it's making the cell membrane depolarize from minus 70 to minus 55, or less than minus 55, because if it reaches minus 55, the action potential will be triggered. But if it won't reach the threshold, it will just fade and disappear. So EPSP is defined as a local depolarization of the postsynaptic membrane. IPSPs or inhibitory. The IPSPs are different because the channels for potassium will open. And if channels for potassium will open, potassium will leave the cell. And if a positive charge leaves the cell, well, inside the cell remains less positive or the same to say, more negative. And this is the definition of a hyperpolarization, when inside the cell turns more negative. Maybe because of opening of calcium cha uh, potassium channels or chloride. And notice the chloride has a negative charge. If chloride channels open, they will move inside the cell. So it makes the thing more negative inside the cell. That's hyperpolarization. And when we see this, the cell's membrane gets more negative. So it's harder for that cell to reach the threshold. Because we'll see in the graph here, it's a peak, but inverted peak. It's turning more negative. And that makes it hard, makes it harder there will have to be more stimulus in order for this minus, minus will be minus 30, 35 here. It will be harder for moving the potential from minus 35 to minus 55. That's why it's inhibitory. It produces a hyperpolarization of the membrane. So IPSP is a local hyperpolarization of the postsynaptic membrane. That's why you say inhibitory. This is opposite to the ex stimulatory or excitatory. And is possible because of potassium channels and chloride channels will open. Now, if we see APSPs and IPSPs, how they get to create an action potential? By adding to each other. And that's what we call summation. One single EPSP cannot create an action potential. That's not enough depolarization. But if we have many of them, uh, of, of EPSPs, they can summate, add to each other, and reach the threshold. Now, inhibitory IPSPs can also summate and make the cell even harder to stimulate. Now, in reality, EPSPs and IPSPs are usually produced at the same time and they play to each other and depending on what the outcome is, is we create an action potential or not. In other words, the message will continue traveling or will just stop there.
if EFP, if EPSPs predominate, then an action potential will be created if reaching the threshold. So this type of summation, there may be of two types of summation. One of them is temporal and spatial uh, summation. Temporal is about one or more presynaptic neurons will transmit the impulse very frequently in rapid fire order. So the first impulse will create EPSPs. And before the, that EPSP fades, another EPSP is triggered. And so in that way, they add to each other like, a, like stairs. And a spatial summation is about the postsynaptic neuron being simulated by many axon terminals at the same time. In that way, many receptors are activated and EPSPs are created at the same time in different parts of the membrane and it reaches the threshold for action potential. That can be observed in this graphs where we see um, two separate, two separate stimuli here at different times where there is no summation because these two stimuli are separated in time. The first one comes, depolarized, and then fades. Second comes, depolarized, and then fades. They cannot summate, they cannot add to each other. But if we see the first stimulus depolarizing the membrane, and before it fades completely, comes the second stimulus, then we see the addition, and the curve keeps rising like the, the steps of a ladder. That's called temporal summation. Two is citatory stimuli close in time enough to cause an action potential when they add to each other. And the spatial summation. We see EPSPs, we see only one arrow, but actually what is happening is one EPSP is being produced in one part of the membrane and a second one in a different part of the membrane, but at the same time, at this same time. And therefore, the depolarization is enough to reach the threshold and we have an action potential. That's spatial summation. And now we see special summation of EPSPs and IPSPs. And see the graph here. We can see if we see I1 first, inhibitory, what happens? Hyperpolarization of the membrane. It gets more negative. But if at a different time we see an excitatory, but at the same time the special summation of EPSP and IPSP, they cancel each other. Because one is depolarizing and the other one is hyperpolarizing. They cancel each other, and it's almost no change in the baseline. Now, in reality, what happens is, as I was saying, every neuron receives axon terminals. Many of them are EPSPs, but other, other uh, connections are IPSPs, or create IPSPs. So depending on which prevails, an action potential is created or not. And that explains how the neurons communicate to each other. It's like a, how we think. Imagine a series of thoughts that we have. We think about A, then we think about B. And if both create, if both are they potentiate each other, then we arrive to C, which is like a summation of those two. But sometimes it's like there is some stimulus trying to move my finger because I, uh, I'm feeling uncomfortable in some place, but some other stimulus are telling me not to move my finger because I should not do it at that time. And I don't move any finger because I'm canceling each other. That's how the, the, the neurons work. And if you see this in a real context, 
it's not one, it's not two. I'm talking about hundreds of connections, axon terminals connecting to many neurons. And then summation will happen and see if an action potential happens, then some action will follow. Synaptic potentiation, potentiation is a concept that means that when we use a synapse repeatedly, that increases their, their ability to excite postsynaptic neuron. And that's because of calcium concentration increased in the presynaptic terminal. And of course, it causes more release of neurotransmitter. And that's one of the ways that the synapses that we use mostly, they can be potentiated. And that brings a concept, learning and memory. That's how the learning process works, long-term potentiation. If we read before an exam and if we pay enough attention, we process that information. We read it again and summarize the information. We are using the same synapses. We are potentiating those synapses. And then the next day when I recall a concept, those synapses will have more concentration of calcium in the axon terminal and they will release more neurotransmitter and will just close the, the, the cycle and make this circuit work better. And that's the basis of the learning. That's why learning is based in part on repetition. That's one of the things. There's some other things that are involved in learning. It depends on many stimuli. Not only reading, but seeing or listening or reading loudly. That's the usefulness of watching a video or listening to the lecture at the same time reading it. You're using different stimulus and you're potentiating the same circuits so they can recall the information later. Presynaptic inhibition, sometimes this happens when the synapses are axo-axonal. It means an axon connecting to another axon right before the synapse, working in the same way. But in this case, it um, stimulate or inhibit whatever the case it is. That's how we see the greater potentials and action potentials, how they are produced. Um, greater potentials, they're usually, typically, produced in the dendrites and in the body. So imagine some greater potential occurring here. Well, the summation will make, and if reached a threshold, the action potential will be created at the axon hillock and the action potential will travel long distances. Greater potentials, they travel short distance. For whatever dendrite or body, they have to travel and spread. And if they reach the axon hillock and they start potentiating or adding to each other, then we can have an action potential. These are differences between greater potential and action potential. Some of them we mentioned last time. Uh, the greater potential decays, fade with the distance. Action potential is always the same size, does not fade. Instead, it propagates along the axon, along the neuron. And the summation is seen here, and greater potentials may be temporal, one synapse being stimulated with increased frequency, or a spatial summation, where we see three connections, they all of them happen at the same time, and then they can create an action potential. Excitatory and inhibitory. Excitatory is depolarization, and inhibitory is hyperpolarization.
In terms of um, channels, we have graphs for graded potentials and action potentials. In the case of uh, graded potential, if it's EPSP, then we see a channel opening and sodium and potassium flowing. More sodium getting in than potassium leaving out. Or maybe inhibitory, in that case, potassium channels or chloride channels will open, making the inside of the cell more negative. In the case of the greater potential, outside, inside becomes more positive. And in the graphs that we have seen, this is our EPSP, this is an EIPSP, and if they reach the threshold, then we will have an action potential, which always have the same shape and same height. Now let's talk about neurotransmitters. What are those molecules that send messages and uh, participate in the chemical synapses? There are more than 50 different types working in different areas of the nervous system. And some neurons, usually, they, they, they work with more than one, one neurotransmitter. They have different chemical structure, and they have function depending on if they are excitatory or inhibitory sometimes. Acetylcholine. Acetylcholine is one of the most studied, was the first identified. That's the one that we find in the neuromuscular junctions between the, the axons and the muscle fibers. Although it can be found also in other parts of the nervous system, like autonomic nervous system and central nervous system neurons. This acetylcholine, if it's released to the synaptic cleft and work following the mechanisms that we described, after it's used, it is recycled, it is uptaken, it's degraded by a specific enzyme called acetylcholinesterase, ACE or ACHE. This enzyme will degrade the excess of acetylcholine in the synaptic cleft. Many medications are, um, have been um, designed to work on some of these components. And uh, for instance, general anesthetics. When we give general anesthesia, there are two steps mostly. In the first step, they give you a, a sedative, so it put you to sleep. And when you fall asleep, then the second step, the second medication is uh, usually uh, medications based on blocking mechanisms of the synapses. So the result will be muscle relaxation, generalized muscle relaxation. And so all the muscles will get relaxed completely, even the respiratory muscles. So you stop breathing. And then in the third step, they put a tube in your trachea, connect to a machine, and you are ventilated by a machine during the process of anesthesia. I'm talking about general anesthesia. You're sleeping and with a tube in your throat and trachea. You're not breathing but you're on your own. You're just completely relaxed, sleeping and uh, the muscles are completely relaxed. And that allows uh, relaxation of the abdominal muscles in case of abdominal surgery, and it helps uh, very much. But the mechanism is we have to relax the muscle. How to relax the muscle? Well, we have to prevent the muscle from contracting. How we do this? Well, the medication goes directed against the receptors for acetylcholine in the muscle. So when the neurons try to contract the muscle, sending orders, all the receptors are occupied by this medication, and the acetylcholine has no place to bind. And therefore, the muscles don't respond. And of course, that has a lifetime, like after some minutes or hours, the medication is cleared, and you stop moving your muscles again. But all those medications are based on these mechanisms. We understood these mechanisms, acetylcholine, how they work. We can relax the muscles, with this type of medications. Other type of uh, neurotransmitters belong to the group of amines, biogenic amines, and here we have catecholamines, catecholamines, 
like dopamine, which is a very uh, important neurotransmitter in the brain also. Norepinephrine, epinephrine, which are, or uh, we find them in autonomic nervous system, specifically sympathetic nervous system. Indolamines, like serotonin, which is also very important in the brain, in some regions of the brain, especially related with the mood. Histamine. And norepinephrine, as we mentioned here, ANS, motor neurons. Now, there's all a theory about the imbalance of neurotransmitters and consequences, and some mental diseases are explained and on the basis of imbalance of neurotransmitters. Amino acids are also found as neurotransmitters like glutamate, aspartate, glycine, and gamma-aminobutyric acid, GABA, which is a very important neurotransmitter in some parts of the brain, GABA. Some peptides, proteins, small proteins, like substance P, which mediates pain signals. Endorphins, a reduced pain perception. These endorphins are released under certain circumstances, like uh, very stressful situations, exercise, um, and they reduce the pain perception. Like when we exercise, and usually when you are trained and in good shape, you have more tolerance to pain under certain circumstances. It doesn't work as an anesthetic. It helps to reduce the pain perception. Gut-brain peptides, somatostatin, cholecystokinin, they work in digestion. These are mentioned in digestive system, in physiology of digestive system. You will see them again, somatostatin and cholecystokinin. But they are also neurotransmitters in uh, the nervous system connecting to the digestive system. Purines, ATP, is also considered a neurotransmitter in some neurons. Adenosine is an inhibitor in the brain. Caffeine, for instance, one of the actions of caffeine is to block receptors for adenosine. For adenosine. And if those receptors are blocked, the inhibition is blocked, and the effect of caffeine, as you know, is a stimulator, is a stimulant. Some gases like nitric oxide, carbon monoxide, hydrogen sulfide, like nitric oxide, which is involved in some connections related to learning and formation of new memories. And these are found in very specific regions of the brain, non-generalized, like the acetylcholine, dopamine, serotonin, which are the major neurotransmitters and GABA. Endocannabinoids, they work uh, receptors that we have, receptors for THC, and actually we have these compounds produced by the brain and they work as neurotransmitters, produced by some neurons. They work under the G protein mechanism. These receptors are the ones that are stimulated by uh, marijuana, cannabinol, THC, because it's the same receptor. The, mole the molecule is exactly the same type in uh, part of the molecule. It's believed to be involved in learning and memory. But don't get confused. It doesn't mean the marijuana helps for learning and memory. It's just that the endocannabinoids that are produced in our body in certain neurons and acting on some receptors, it promotes or it is involved in learning and memory, and neuronal development, controlling appetite, suppressing nausea, but in very specific circumstances, not uh, in a generalized way.
So the functions may be of different types. Neurotransmitters, all these neurotransmitters that we, that we have mentioned, they have different functions. We can classify them in inhibitory and excitatory. But besides that, they work for the mood, learning, memory, autonomic nervous system. And um, the functions are grouped in two types, according to the effects and according to the actions. The effects, excitatory and inhibitory, like, for example, GABA and glycine are usually inhibitory. Glutamate is excitatory. Acetylcholine, norepinephrine, may be excitatory at neuromuscular junctions in the skeletal muscle, but may be inhibitory in cardiac muscle because it depends on the type of receptors. The same neurotransmitter may have different effect depending on the type of receptors that uh, some cells have. So it gets more complex than just saying this neurotransmitter is excitatory. For acetylcholine, maybe excitatory or inhibitory, depends on the type of receptors. We'll expand more of this in, uh, about this in the uh, nervous system. We'll see the effects of some neurotransmitters according to the type of receptor or action direct or indirect. Direct is when the neurotransmitter binds directly to the ion channels, like acetylcholine and some amino acids. The same channel has a site for the neurotransmitter. Or indirect, when the neurotransmitter works through a chain of messengers and reactions like the G protein mechanism, which is a sequence of three or four proteins that are activated before the final mechanism triggers. Now, to have a better idea of how the nervous system works, we have to think about not only in synapses that go one, like a chain of neurons, but instead in, time, in terms of circuits. And that's the concept of neural integration. Neurons work in groups, and the groups will get together and organize accordingly depending on the function they have to perform. So in order to work for some specific purpose, we probably activate hundreds of groups of neurons, and each group of neurons is like more hundreds of neurons. So these connections are really complex. That's what we call neuronal pool, a group of neurons working together, functional group of neurons. They get information from other neurons and organize accordingly to what the function is and activate different groups. And those different groups work under different types of circuits also. Like a simple neuronal pool, it's a single presynaptic fiber branches and synapses with many neurons in the pool. There is a discharge zone and there's a facilitated zone. The discharge zone are neurons closer to the incoming fiber. Facilitated are neurons located next to the discharge zone. They are not excited unless they are stimulated by other uh, signals. And that's how we see this concept of simple pool. We see a single presynaptic fiber, the input, and this is branching. But there are three neurons in the discharge zone, which is the one that is activated. But then the neurons next to it, to them, are facilitated zone. They are stimulated, but not mainly. The main stimulation happens in the discharge zone. If necessary, this facilitated zone can be also activated and the signal will keep traveling, perhaps a stronger signal. Serial processing. It's when the input goes along a pathway, like one neuron stimulates next one and then the next one and so. Example of serum processing is a spinal reflex. And the spinal reflex, like the usual reflex that we stimulate in the knee, 
and the tendon of the quadriceps, and that's the lab today on reflexes, it's a neuron stimulating another neuron, and that neuron another one, like in the serial processing. And then comes the response, which is the contraction of the muscle. So the reflexes are actions that result of this serial processing of neurons in a specific place. They are rapid responses to a stimulus, and there are five components of this reflex arc. We call this sequence of serial processing uh, reflex arc. A receptor, a sensory neuro is involved, integration center, which is in the central nervous system, a motor neuron, and an effector organ. Five components of these reflexes uh, that work in serial processing. And we have them here, an example with a spinal cord, and this is an example of how a spinal reflex work. These are the five components. The stimulus come here, and let's say the receptor, what is the receptor? Maybe in the skin, like in the reflex on the knee that we uh, uh, stimulate or test as a part of the physical examination. We hit with a hammer on the skin and there's a receptor there that sends information which is perceived by the sensory neuron, that's the second component. The sensory neuron is in the dorsal root ganglion in the spinal nerve. Well, that neuron connects to the central nervous system, which is the integration center, a neuron located in the spinal cord, gray matter, which is an interneuron. And that interneuron connects to the next neuron, which is a motor neuron, in red, because it's going to send a response. And that response travels through the axon to an effector organ, which may be a muscle and that muscle contracts. So this is an example of the spinal reflex to show the serial processing, how one neuron stimulates another one. In this case, there are three neurons involved, sensory neuron, interneuron, and the motor neuron. But there's another type of processing which is in parallel. And the input travel not in a chain, but also in along different pathways that go in parallel, but simultaneously. So one stimulus promotes many, neuro, uh, many responses from many other neurons. This is the one we see in mental work. When we think, when we process information, apply logics, we are doing parallel processing. At the same time, we're activating different parts of our brain and, and getting to different ideas at the same time. Like, if we smell something, that will go to some part of our brain, so we are conscious of that smell. But at the same time, it brings us memories of something that happened before. And finally, the type of circuits that we see in the neurons, in the neural pools, neuronal pools, may be of four types. Diverging, converging, reverberating, and parallel after discharge. And we see pictures about these different types of circuits. Diverging, as the name says, it diverges from one single input. And then it goes amplifying. One stimulates two neurons, and these two neurons stimulate two more, two others. And then these two will stimulate two others. And at the end, we have many outputs that started from a single input. This happens in the spinal cord when it stimulates the muscles, skeletal muscles. One input will start diverging into many other neurons and move the whole muscle, for instance, contract one muscle or more than one muscle. Converging. Many inputs, but one output. 
This is when we try to use many different synapses, many different inputs to generate one output. Like when we try to recall something, we recall our memory, we don't get it, we don't remember, but then we see a picture and we get something and we smell something and then we remember. So we provide many inputs to one single output. Reverberating. There's one signal, but at some point, it will create a loop. It will stimulate this neuron and it will come to this neuron. This neuron will return and re-stimulate the previous neuron and we start having loops. Reverberating. This is what happens in breathing. When we breathe, inhalation, exhalation, inhalation, exhalation. We stimulate the muscles of the thorax once, but then it we create a loop, and it continues to stimulate and stimulate. We don't even notice about it. Or other reparative motor activities like walking. When you start walking, you don't have to think about every single step. We just start walking, and then a loop is created in terms of signals that will keep going and going. In parallel after this charge, it's a complex one that happens from a single stimulus, a simple single input, but then it starts traveling in parallel, and then converge into one neuron, which provides the output. But after the initial stimulus, it will simulate two other neurons that will start traveling or in parallel, but then they will converge in one single output. This is. Um, these are involved in mental processes, like we perform mathematical calculations, we start getting knowledge from here, from there, remember a formula, and apply different two formulas, and we do it in parallel after this charge until we get one output and we fix the problem. All right, that was the last one. Questions? Today we have the lab on uh, reflexes. We're gonna do different types of reflexes, work with the lab manual, activities one, three, and six. So I'll take a 10 minute break and then we'll come back for that. I'll give you structures for that after the break.